you'll join me this morning, we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We continue walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This morning we will find ourselves in verses 1 through 12. The title of my sermon is Building Up the Church. And the key words for our worshipers in training are build, church, and tongue. Now as we get into chapter 14, we must remember that we are continuing on in the broader context of chapters 12 through 14. That This really should be taken as one unit um, altogether. And Paul is speaking of spiritual gifts within the church for the purpose of building up or edification within the church. That God gives spiritual gifts to the church in very diverse ways as we remain unified with one another for the building up of the church. And we were reminded in chapter 13 that these gifts are to be exercised, to be employed with love. And he showed us the great attributes of love, 15 attributes of love that we ought to be striving after amongst the body of Christ. And so as we get into chapter 14, you will see uh, most of you probably in your scriptures, you will see the uninspired title is prophecy and tongues. But I want to remind us that this chapter is not mainly ultimately about tongues and prophecy but rather is about the church and about each believer's responsibility within the church to work toward the edification of the entire body of Christ. Now, he will at great length discuss these gifts of prophecy and tongues, but this is in the greater context of edification. And so Paul is, remember, addressing these issues specific to the Corinthian situation. Everyone in the church wanted to speak in tongues. And they were attempting to do so without any love whatsoever. And we saw that in chapter 13. And so they had this great desire to speak in tongues. And so not only were some of them having the true gift of tongues and utilizing that within the church, but others were even introducing pagan practices into the church and speaking in unintelligible words altogether. And so with this context in mind, we will address prophecy and tongues to understand why Paul is making the argument that he does. And on these very issues, there is much confusion in the church today, is there not? There is much confusion as to what these are for, what these were for, and what they are to look like today. And so this morning we're going to spend our time mainly considering uh, what is the gift of tongues, what is the gift of prophecy, and how is it that the church is to be built up by these things. I will not spend much time this morning discussing um, the cessation of these gifts, the ending of these gifts. If you want to consider that more, you can go back and listen. I spoke on that at the end of chapter 12, so be sure to follow up with that. But we do believe, we do teach that these gifts have ceased and are no longer operative in the church today, but that in their time and place in the early church that they were necessary and beneficial when used properly. And so Paul is going to address the Corinthian situation in the proper use of these gifts. Now remember, as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, we've seen that the Corinthians were allowing the world's system around them to infiltrate into their assembly, and they used that to inform how they would function as the church. It was a great disaster. It was a mess. And as we've walked through, we've seen several things. Chapters 1 through 4, we saw how they were all hung up on the world's philosophies. 
In chapter 3, we saw uh, Paul address that in their midst they had a certain form of hero worship. I want to follow this teacher and they want to follow that one instead of all coming together to follow after the Lord. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul addressed uh, terrible, gross sexual immorality that was going on within the body. In chapter 6, we saw that the believers were suing one another for financial gain and prosperity. Chapter 7, we see Paul addressing various misunderstandings that they had about marriage and the gift of singleness. Chapters 8 through 10, we see their great ignorance about pagan feasts and idolatry and how their Christian liberties played into all of this. Chapter 11 addressed the role of women and the fact that they had the Lord's Supper all backwards and were seeking to use that for their own gain. Chapter 12, a misunderstanding about the spiritual gifts. And then we saw in chapter 13 that they were seeking to utilize spiritual gifts for their own fame, for their own recognition, and did so without any love whatsoever. And so we can see that the Corinthian church had quite a few issues, uh, to say the least. Now, all these ecstasies and all these eroticisms of the world's system all of the paganism that was surrounding them and was now coming into the church had them very confused. And so, is there any question really that they messed up the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy? It seems to fall right in line with everything else that Paul has addressed up to this point. So let's read these 12 verses, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And so Paul begins this chapter really where he left off, and we could actually probably tie this to chapter 13 when he begins by saying, pursue love. In other words, love is of first importance. He's saying, chase after, run after love. This is of vital importance. But then he says alongside that, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So pursue love, run after love, but have a desire, a want for the gifts. And so Paul is not ever through all all of these chapters saying to turn off that desire. He says to want spiritual gifts. These are good things when they are properly utilized within the church. But the Corinthians simply desired those gifts which were showy, 
which gained great attention. And so Paul is focusing on the fact that they were seeking after these things for their own gain and not for the edification of the church. But he does make the statement out front that they are to earnestly desire the gift. So love is most important. Therefore, pursue that alongside a desire for spiritual gifts. And in doing so, love will direct the proper employment of the gifts. Pursue love and continue to seek the operation of the Holy Spirit. The true things that the Spirit of God is doing. And so, now Paul moves on to give explanation of how this is to be discerned. Again, remember, within the Corinthian context, he's going to address the proper function of these gifts. And his focus becomes the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Because these were two of the major things that were hang-ups in the Corinthian congregation. Remember, we've seen him address these things time and again and showing how very little, really, of a gift uh, tongues was because that was the one they wanted to show the most. Now, both of these gifts, tongues and prophecy, are what we call word gifts. These are gifts that are specifically tied to words being given, words being spoken. And Paul makes very clear from the outset that prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues. We see that uh, right away in verse 1. He says, especially, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And we will speak about why it is that prophecy is superior. And so all throughout this chapter, we will see that Paul is deliberately contrasting prophecy with tongues. It sort of runs like a steel rod down the middle of the chapter. And we see him continuously working through this. Let's look at these examples. Verses 2 and 3. One who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. Verse 4, the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, I want you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Verse 6, I come speaking in tongues. If I come speaking in tongues, that's of no great benefit to you unless there is revelation or knowledge or prophecy. Then we will see in verses 7 through 19, there's a detailed discussion about tongues, particularly their unintelligibility apart from proper interpretation. In verse 22, he writes about following out the command and the appeal to the Old Testament text in which he cites in verses 20 and 21. Again, speaking of prophecy and tongues. Verses 23 and 24. We see again, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. And so then we will see instructions on the use of these things, verse 27, uh, for tongues and prophecy in verses 29 through 32. And then he ends the chapter in verse 39, writing, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So, as we read through this, I believe it is a safe assumption to make that in Corinth the priorities of the gifts were reversed. And tongues was held in greater superiority over prophecy, or perhaps even they were taking the position that tongues was the only legitimate mode or means of prophecy. And we very much see that in sectors of the church today. That there are those who take this gift of tongues and elevate it to a place of greater importance than Anything else, the proclaiming of the Word of God and anything that we partake in as the worship of God. 
And as we look through this chapter, we must recognize that Paul does not make any sharp divisions between prophecy and tongues. But he does make very clear that one is greater than the other. Both of these are associated with the communication of what Paul frequently calls mysteries. You see, in chapter 13, verse 2, he referred to this. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so he ties this idea of prophetic powers to these mysteries. Mysteries being revealed through this gift of prophecy. Again, we see in verse 2 of chapter 14, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And so there we see the gift of tongues tied to mysteries. But Paul wants the Corinthians to know that there is a difference between the two, and one is clearly superior over the other. So I believe for us it is important to consider all that Paul is writing in the broader context of Scripture, to answer two questions. Namely, what is this gift of tongues that he is speaking about? And what is this gift of prophecy? So first, what is tongues? Well, as we've seen from chapter 12 all the way through up now to chapter 14, that the Tongues was a spiritual gift. It was a gift given by God, operative by the power and work of the Holy Spirit in particular believers. Now this gift was the ability to speak in previously unknown languages to the speaker. These were actual foreign languages being spoken. We see that in Acts chapter 2 verse 6. The Holy Spirit fell on the church at Pentecost and all who were gathered from all over various regions heard the believers speaking in their own native language language, and they were astonished by this. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says that these Jews were devout Jews gathered from every nation under heaven. And as they gathered and the believers spoke, They spoke in the languages of all who were gathered. They were astonished to hear Galileans speaking in their native tongue. There would have been no way for them to have known their languages. And so we see from the outset that the very first instance of tongues being utilized in the church was actual languages. And that is very important to our understanding. And interestingly, from there, the only other mention of tongues outside of the book of Acts is in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians because it was so confused and so chaotic in their midst. But because of that, we should not simply assume by that that the gift was not used in other New Testament congregations like Jerusalem and Antioch and Ephesus and on and on. But only that in those congregations, the gift was being properly employed. But in the Corinthian context, it was not. So Corinth had taken this gift of tongues and substituted it with a pagan, ecstatic type of speech. Unintelligible words that were not human languages. Now, as a note to us, ecstatic speech, unintelligible Words or languages is very common in pagan religions throughout the world, even today. It's a pagan practice. There is nothing of Christianity tied to this practice. It is literally the speaking of gibberish. It is the speaking of nonsensical words that are either made up by the speaker or employed by some other force. But it is not a work of the Holy Spirit. A good example of this is in many uh, African tribes, in their tribal worship of false gods. 
And they will, and you can read account after account of this, they get set into a sort of trance or an ecstasy. And if you've ever seen this, it is a little bit creepy. But they get set into this trance, and quite literally, they are, uh, they are getting a part of ecstasy, which literally means to go out of oneself. And so, they're, they're flipping out, they're going into an unconscious state, and all sorts of phenomenon begin to occur around them. So some would look at that and say, well then, surely it's a work of God. But we must remember, throughout all the Scriptures, we continuously see unnatural phenomenon occur that is not the work of God. We see many phenomena occur that are attributed to the work of Satan. And so pagan worship practices are very dangerous and introduce the work of Satan in many ways. This is not the Holy Spirit's work. And this was very common in Corinth as a city as well. These pagan believers really believe that they leave their body that they ascend to worship alongside whatever deity it is that they are supposedly worshiping, and that they are speaking in the language of their God. And this was very common in Greek culture, this was very common in Roman culture, and it is very common today in various pagan cultures. And so this so-called language of the gods was absolute gibberish. Uh, we can read about uh, this uh, in the writings of Plato, who was around from 429 to 347 B.C. In his dialogues, he wrote page after page after page describing these pagan ecstasies of speech. This never belonged to Christianity. It was a perversion of God's intended purpose and came straight from paganism and was introduced into the church. Now, in chapter 14, looking ahead to verse 21, Paul writes, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 28 verse 11 is a very clear indication even from the Old Testament that this gift of tongues was specific languages being spoken. He refers to the tongues of foreigners. Furthermore, these tongues we see in Paul's writing were words that were able to be translated and therefore would have to have been actual languages for translation to occur. So, we see that tongues were actual languages. In addition, tongues were revelational. In verse 2, let's read that again. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. We see in numerous other New Testament passages that references are made to mysteries that are to be revealed or made known. This use of this word happens 28 times in the New Testament, and every single one of them is a reference to something that was once a mystery that is now being made known. What is the whole idea of God giving to His people His Word? That that which was once unknown, that that which was once a mystery, is now known. Christianity does not exist in mysteries or the unknown. It exists in that which is in the light, which is clear, which is communicated to all the nations, that God would be glorified all the more. And so the idea that these things were unknown is refuted by the very fact that He is speaking of mysteries to be made known. And I'll address the particular issue of what he's speaking of in verse 2 there in a minute. 
But tongues were a means by which God disclosed truth. He made truth known to be revealed to the new covenant people of God. Look also at verses 4 and 5. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. In verse 5... Paul is equating this gift of tongues with prophecy. So in other words, the the very message given by the tongue that is spoken is brought to the level of divinely inspired prophecy once it has been interpreted by one who understands the language. It is said also by Paul that these interpreted tongues were used to edify the church. How does that happen? Is it the sound of the words? Is it the very fact that are we edified when we hear someone else speak in another language we don't understand? Is it the sensation that's created by the voice of someone else speaking in an unintelligible language? No. To be edified by the tongue is understanding. Is gaining greater knowledge of God by the newly revealed Word of God. So, remember, they did not yet, in the Corinthian context, they did not have the completed Bible. They didn't have all of the Scriptures. They didn't have God's final Word. And so, they were being edified by the Word of God spoken by the apostles and the prophets until the conclusion of the canon of Scripture. And so, tongues were... Human foreign languages and tongues were revelational. Some were given the gift to speak languages they did not previously know. And what they spoke was to reveal truth to the Corinthians, to the church, prior to the conclusion of the canon of Scripture. Now, what is prophecy? We see in the context of this chapter that prophecy is also revelatory. Look at verse 30. Paul writes, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And through this, he is speaking of prophecy being employed. And we see in chapter 13, verse 2, which we read earlier, he speaks of all mysteries. So mysteries being revealed through this gift of prophecy. So prophecy is revelatory. And that certainly doesn't need much, much explanation. Most understand that to be the case. Prophecy is also foundational. Prophecy is foundational. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses this in another context. He writes in chapter 2, verse 20 of the book of Ephesians, that believers, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. And then in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he writes, how the mystery was made known to you, known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. And so we see very clearly that the Apostle Paul is saying that prophecy, the prophecy going out, these things that were spoken are foundational to the church. And so these New Testament prophets were proclaiming the Word of God. And some of this proclaimed Word was eventually inscripturated and now contained in the Bible. This is the foundation upon the... Uh, upon which the church was established. Now, for this to be true, we must conclude that the New Testament prophets spoke infallible, without error, words from the Lord. New Testament prophets spoke words that were without error. 
they were from God. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18, standards are given by which all prophecy is to be measured. And there is no indication as we read the Scripture that we should think any differently of the requirements of New Testament prophets over and against those of the Old Testament. So the two major standards that are given in Deuteronomy for prophecy to be measured is that first, all that is prophesied must be and must eventually come true. It must come to pass. If it is future revelation, that which was to come, then it must come to pass. And most certainly, all that is said, all that is given must be true. It must come true. Secondly, that prophecy given could not contradict any previous revelation. It must teach people to follow the one true God of the Bible. Now, we see this very often today from individuals, from entire churches who claim to be speaking words of the Lord, but those words of the Lord happen to contradict the word of the Lord. According to the standard given to us by Scriptures, there cannot be any contradiction. We see this regularly in Roman Catholicism. The decrees of the Pope, which are said to be infallible, if you read the decrees of various popes all over the place, contradict each other. Therefore, we can very quickly conclude this is not the Word of God. Now, prophecy also means to speak before, to speak before others, to speak the words of God. And so it's not mainly future prediction. There is future prediction in some prophecy, but that was not the main function. Instead of speaking tongues, then Paul is calling them to have someone get up and give God's word. Don't be so wrapped up in everyone speaking tongues. Have someone rise up and give a word from the Lord. Preach the word. We've heard that time and again, right? And so as we look at chapter 14, we must remember these two things. Tongues were human languages that when properly employed and interpreted were equivalent with prophecy because they were revelatory. And it was also a sign gift, a gift that showed evidence of this being a work of God. And secondly, that prophecy was revelatory, foundational for the building of the church, infallible, and often, and as we have now, canonical. We have it in the canon of Scripture. And so I will say that if you remember, as we talked about in chapter 12, that there is sort of a a cascade here in terms of the gifts. The Lord gave to the church the gift of the apostles, and we all agree, and most in the church today would agree, that the apostles have ceased. The gift of the apostle has ceased with the passing of the apostles because of the great requirements that were placed on one to be apostles. We understand that that is no longer in operation. Now, we see often the apostles and the prophets are coupled together. And so if the apostles were given for the writing of the doctrine of the church, the establishment of the church, alongside the prophets who were giving the word of God, we see if the apostles were gone, then certainly the prophets would be gone as well. And if the gift of tongues was the speaking of languages to reveal that which is true, or prophetic, or revelatory, we see then that that as well is ceased. And so there's a cascade. But Paul, as we've already looked at, explains tongues to be secondary in importance to prophecy. Why? Well, remember that the main point of the entire chapter is the building up or the edification of the church. This gift of prophecy, Paul makes clear, edifies the whole congregation. While tongues, on the other hand, is useless to edify in and of itself. 
tongues cannot edify. This is his point in verses 1 through 5. In other words, tongues, remember we're talking here about uninterpreted tongues, does not work to fulfill the purpose of meeting together, namely the building up of the church. Or as Hebrews 10.24 tells us, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but to stir one another to love and to good deeds. Well, if I am speaking unintelligible language to you that is not interpreted, that does nothing to stir you to love and good deeds. It's useless. In verse 26, we read the Apostle Paul, let all things be done for building up. In verse 12, he wrote, strive to excel in building up the church. So the obvious reason for the inferiority of tongues is that nobody is able to understand what is being said. How do I edify you? How do I build you up if I speak to you in a language that you do not know? This is Paul's point in verses 6 through 11. So then we may ask, well, why the gift of tongues at all? Why did he not just give to the church this gift of prophecy and not uh, even deal with tongues? Well, it certainly, I will admit, would be much easier today were that not the case, but it was. Why? Because, remember, tongues was also a sign gift. It was to show the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in and around the people. Also, we see at Pentecost, this gathering of the nations. The first time that we saw languages confused was when? At Babel. That's where we get the word Babel today. The languages were all confused. There was pagan idol worship going on. They thought they did not need God. And so God confused their languages and they were scattered abroad. And so Pentecost then, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit to fall on the church. And we see now a gathering of the people back together. That we are now united under one true word of God. For every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, no longer scattered and confused. And so, tongues were to show a sort of reversal of what God did in terms of judgment at Babel. It was a gift that was a sign. Now, let's look at some of the controversial and confusing verses. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, literally, and if you have the King James, you'll see this. Literally, Paul is saying, speaks in an unknown tongue. For one who speaks in an unknown tongue. In other words, gibberish. It's not a language. And then in verse 4, he writes, The one who speaks in an unknown tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then we see in verse 5, he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, notice, very important here, is in verse 2 and in verse 4, he uses the word tongue singular. He's referring to unknown an unknown tongue. In verse 5, he uses tongues plural. He's speaking there of the actual proper employment of this gift, of these tongues, these languages. Some would seek to conclude that Paul is saying that there are two types of edification in the church. One being self-edification, and that's what tongues are for. And others would say uh, church edification, and that's what prophecy is for. But that does not fit the context of the passage. Paul is saying that all gifts are given for the edification, for the building up of the church. So he's continuously exhorting them to go especially hard after the gift of prophecy. In verse 19, not to belabor the point, but Paul writes, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so Paul continues to emphasize the importance of understanding for the purpose of edification and that 
that is the point of spiritual gifts in the church. So in verse 4, Paul is not referring to two different types of edification. Rather, what he is doing is criticizing this self-serving use of the gifts that the Corinthians were so entrenched in. He's defining the goal or the purpose of the gifts to align the Corinthian purpose with the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the building up of the church. John Calvin wrote, The more anxious a person is to devote himself to upbuilding, the more highly Paul wishes him to be regarded. And so we see from this passage that the thrust is building up the church. Many would look at verse 2, and perhaps you've heard this, it's very common today, and find in that reason to have what they would call a private prayer language. This is the very thing that Paul is condemning in the Corinthian context. Paul is saying, you've missed the point. God designed for these gifts for men, for edification, for building up in the church, but you are privately seeking to build yourself up and to be showy in front of others. To consider yourself to be more spiritual than others because you have some sort of private language that you speak with God. But if tongues is to edify the church, why would it ever be in privacy with God? Does God need to be edified? Certainly not. I challenge anyone to go through every single prayer written in the Bible. Is there ever any indication whatsoever that we are to pray in some unintelligible language? Never. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. Let's look quickly in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. Jesus said, when you pray, and this is after the disciples came to Jesus and he's about to give them the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Other translations use the word vain repetitions. Do not give up vain repetitions to God. Now, this is uh, very interesting in the Greek. This is a word, vain repetitions is the word bata lageo. Let me explain that. The verb logeo is to speak. That's where the other word in Greek, logos, which means word, comes from. That prefix, though, bata, it's not even a word. It's a figure of speech. And so, Jesus is saying here, don't offer up bata lageo. Do not speak in words that don't mean anything. And this is the equivalent of what we use in English. It's called an onomatopoeia. I like to say that, onomatopoeia. (laughs) It's a vocal imitation of a sound. Right? You remember this from school? So when you zip up your jacket, it goes zip. That's an onomatopoeia. It's not a word. It's an imitation of a sound. Or a car, when it drives, we say it goes vroom. That's an onomatopoeia. We can write it out. We can say it, but it's not an actual word. And so this is the same idea with bata. So Jesus is literally saying, don't pray bata, bata, bata. Or in our context, don't pray zip, vroom, buzz. (laughs) What good is it? Who does this edify? It's nonsense, and I'm glad you laughed. Because it's laughable. It is laughable to think that we would approach the God of the universe with such nonsense. And so Paul, in the same light, in the same way as Jesus, commands us to pray with understanding in intelligible languages. Look back again at 1 Corinthians in verses 5 through 12. 
He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, Paul uses a bit of hyperbole here. He says, if I had my way, I'd be fine with everyone speaking in tongues. But if everyone was a proclaimer of God's word, that's even better. Well, we know that's not the case, right? At the end of chapter 12, he gives these rhetorical questions and says, does everyone have the gift of tongues? Well, the obvious answer is no. So there is some hyperbole on Paul's part here. And then from there, verses 6 through 12, he goes on to emphasize the importance of the intelligibility of speech and the superiority of prophecy. We will not walk through those verse by verse, but the thrust is all the same. He gives several illustrations through that passage. Now, three concluding thoughts, and we will move on to the Lord's Supper. First, we must be very careful as the church to guard against pagan forms of worship that Satan would delight in seeing manifest in our midst. God, we will see later in chapter 14, is a God of order. And as such, our worship should reflect that very character of God. One of the defining characteristics of pagan practices is disorder and chaos, primarily fueled by sensual ecstasies and feelings and emotions. Brothers and sisters, Christianity has never, ever been predicated on emotion but always on truth. So we must remain tenaciously tied to the Word of God. And we must heed the Word of God lest we fall and trust that God's Word is sufficient and final, even though sometimes that's difficult. Otherwise, we open ourselves to pagan forms of worship and begin the downward descent. Second. When the church comes together, we must hear the prophetic word of God proclaimed. Now, I do not mean that anything that is said from this pulpit is prophecy. We are speaking of the word that was prophetic as it was inscripturated. The prophetic word of God as we have in the scriptures. That is, we must hear and be instructed by the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, we must be committed to the preaching and teaching of the Bible. So proclaiming today, while not prophecy, is a continuation of this edification intended by prophecy in tongues. It is a proclamation an explanation of that which was once given as prophecy or as an explanation. And so we must be committed to that. Paul instructs the Corinthians to pursue the gift of prophecy for the building up of the church. Likewise, we must utilize a prophetic word for our edification, for the building up of the church. And lastly, we must put great value on anything that serves to build up or edify the church. This is the goal of spiritual gifts that God has given. It's important that each of us realize how important that we are to the upbuilding of the Christian church. We're not speaking here organizationally, but rather in prayer and in love and encouragement and all these things that God has intended for the gifts to be used for. This is edification. We are called as brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God to intimate involvement in each other's lives. And as members of this body, we have covenanted together to work toward and to pray for unity. We are seeking to walk together in love, to exercise care and watchfulness over one another, to exhort one another when necessary, to assemble together, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And we must pray for God's help in all of this. But we must place a high emphasis on the edification of the church, on the building up of the church. This is why we gather And from that, we see very quickly that the church is not about me, the individual. 
The corporate gathering of God's people is about us, united together in Christ. And we'll look at that more in a few weeks. The Holy Spirit is at work in and around us that we can love and care for one another. This only comes when the Holy Spirit transforms us. We are drawn to Jesus. Our eyes are open that we would see. Our ears are open that we would hear. And we would delight in the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. It is only by that transformative work of God in our lives that we have any desire whatsoever to work for the edification and the building up of the church. And so let us all strive to constantly be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus as we strive to know more of God from His Word, as we understand more of our sinful condition and therefore understand more and more of our need for the gospel, for the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have given us instruction that we not be confused, that we not fall into false practices, that we not do that which is in utter disregard for that which You have already given to us in Your Word, as You have revealed Yourself to us. Father, we're grateful that we're not left to guess and to make up our own practices and our and, and to let our own sinful desires trump those things of which You have given in Your Word. Father, thank You for clarity and instruction. We pray, God, that You would keep us tied to Your Word. Help us, Lord, to not fall ever into false teaching, but that we would continuously proclaim the truth of Your Word, that we would stand firmly upon the foundation of Your Word, And that we would glory in Christ. That we would work to build one another up. To stir one another up to love and good deeds as we meet together in our homes day by day and as we gather on the Lord's Day each week. We pray, God, that you would bless our gatherings. That they would be filled with edification. They would be filled with joy and satisfaction in Christ. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity now to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We love You and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.